0: In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, Lord, we ask your Holy Spirit to be with us again this morning as we delve into Paul's first missionary journey and another subject that is very interesting, the Council of Jerusalem. So we ask you to help us to open our minds and our hearts to hear and listen to what you have to say, what the Spirit has to say to each of us through Holy Scripture. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things, in Jesus' name. Today we're going to really get into Paul's first missionary journey, or I should say Saul, because if you've noticed that after a certain point, Luke doesn't use the word or the name Saul anymore. And many people have asked me, well, what's the difference and why was his name changed? Well, there's two theories. None of them, or neither of them, or I should say, are documented or cemented in, in, in any way. One is that As you know, Paul was a Jew born to a Jewish mother, but a Roman father. And quite often in that culture and in that time period, people would have a slightly different name depending on what uh, group of people you were in or among. Uh, You would have a Jewish name, in this case Saul or you would have a Roman name, in this case, Paul. The other theory is that, as you know, throughout the Bible, there have been many people whose names have been changed either by God uh, as an adult, or in some cases, such as in John the Baptist, his name was dictated before he was even born. And the name change was always indicative of that person having a special role in God's plan of salvation. And of course, what better example would we have than Paul here, who changed from, you might say, a a very murderous type of Jewish person to the Christian that we look upon as being the first of the great theologians of the Christian church Uh, so that certainly is a very important role in God's plan of salvation and again there are many uh, questions regarding as we know uh, one of our members here asked uh, the very pointed question and important question really of why would God select somebody like Paul after having trained and been with uh, the 12 apostles uh, for at least three years. All right. So uh, the only answer I can give you is that if you look back in the Old Testament, God chose some really strange people to do some great things uh, for him as furthering his plan of salvation. Uh, there are a number of people, if you just go through the genealogies in both Matthew and in Luke, uh, you will see how a number of people, some with rather questionable backgrounds, uh, were then used to do great things to further God's plan. So that's the only reason, or that's the only way we can really explain some of the uh, situations surrounding uh Saul of Tarsus who became the great uh saint paul okay i'd like to start getting right into this unless somebody has any great important questions that they've got to get answered right away all right let's then begin with uh chapter 13 Actually, if we want to start a little bit uh, before that, a few verses, or one verse before that, it says the mission of Barnabas and Saul. Well, this is, this is the first time. <coughs> this is the first time we're meeting somebody by the name of Barnabas. And we'll meet a, a number of uh, people like Barnabas uh, and a few others who have been given Uh, You might say in an honorary way the title of apostle, but technically they were not apostles. Okay. After Barnabas and Saul completed their relief mission, that was a collection taken up from various communities outside of Jerusalem to be given to the people of Jerusalem, Because they were being ostracized and prevented from even buying um, the necessary things to sustain themselves in Jerusalem as punishment for being part of the new way, the new Christian way. That's where some of the persecutions really began to spill over from Herod to the local people in Jerusalem and those who accepted the new way were really being punished for it. So that is what they're talking about, the um, relief mission, you might say. It says, now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who was a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. Then, completing their fasting and prayer, they laid hands on them and sent them off. Laying hands at that time, and even today, was a sign of transferring power. today when a bishop consecrates young men for the priesthood that is the outward sign remember all of our sacraments have an outward sign and that is the outward sign of the transfer or the uh, the execution you might say of the sacrament of holy orders is when the bishop lays the hands on the head of each of the candidates uh, for the priesthood. Now, did everyone hear that? Jim asked about the one that it says here where it says um, at the last part of verse 25, it says, um, Paul and Barnabas completed their relief mission. They returned to Jerusalem, taking with them John, who was called Mark. All right, this person probably had two names in some way, um, such as we've just explained. Uh, this is the person that later became the evangelist, Saint Mark. Uh, let's go on. So they sent forth the Holy Spirit and went down to Seleucia, where they sailed to Cyprus. This is the beginning of the first missionary journey. When they arrived in Salamis they claimed, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. They had John also as their assistant when they had traveled through the whole island as far as Paphos. They met a magician by the name of Bar, and I'm going to call him Bar Jesus in the Spanish way rather than Bar Jesus so that we don't get a little confused here. Okay. (laughs) Who was a Jewish false prophet. Now what do we mean by a false prophet? Alright. It sounds like an oxymoron in a way. But what is meant here is that way back. We're going way back now to the time of uh, uh, Ahab and Jezebel. Jezebel was the. Queen uh, and the wife of King Ahab of Israel back in the 7th and 8th century. A very evil couple, you might say. She being even more so than he. And there were prophets sent by God such as Isaiah and Hosea and Amos. And they worked signs and wonders. Jezebel started what was called the school of prophets to try to mimic these people. And she disapproved and was very uh, angry at the true prophets because of what they said. And so she tried to then develop a school of prophets who would say what she wanted them to say. So they were sort of competing. And these later became what is called the guild prophets. These were not prophets sent by God. And later they were, I meant again later, they were referred to as false prophets. Just kind of a little explanation there. He, that is this Bar Jesus, was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who had summoned Barnabas and Saul and wanted to hear the word of God. But Alimus, the magician, for that is what his name means, uh, opposed them in an attempt to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Paul, also known as, I mean as Saul, also known as Paul, and this is the last time Luke uses the word or the name Saul. So you might kind of keep that in mind. Filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all that is right, full of every sort of deceit and fraud, will you not stop twisting the straight paths of the Lord? Even now, the hand of the Lord is upon you. You will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately a dark mist fell upon him and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he became, he came to believe and he was astonished by the teaching about the Lord. Now, Paul. Uh, In Presidius. This is another Antioch here. Okay, We've mentioned that before. And I think you can see it. On the maps that you have. From Paphos Paul. And his uh, companions. Now who are his companions? Mark. And Barnabas. Okay. Set sail and arrived at Perga. In In Pamphylia. But John left them and returned to Jerusalem. They continued on from Perga and reached Antioch in Presidia. On the Sabbath they entered into the synagogue and took their seats. After reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent word to them. My brothers, if one of you has a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. Now let me stop there for a moment. Remember, I believe it was last week or perhaps the week before, we talked about Peter and the visions that Peter had and the uh, interaction that he had with the Roman Cornelius. So Peter is starting out to teach the Gentiles, whereas Paul Is continuing to try to teach to the Jews. After a while, they switch. Okay? Where Peter continues on with the Jews and Paul then turns to the Gentiles. Is that clear? Okay. Because it can be a little confusing as you uh, can see later on. Okay. Now, Paul is being asked to get up and speak. So he says, so Paul got up, motioned with his hand and said, fellow Israelites, Jews that is, and you others who are God-fearing Gentiles, because there were in synagogues, particularly in this area, a mixture of people. Listen, the God of of this people, Israel, Chose our ancestors and exalted the people during their sojourn in the land of Egypt. With uplifted arm, he led them out of. It. Now, uplifted arm, he, who are we talking about? Moses, okay. Paul is going back and sort of summarizing in a very brief way the history of the Jews up until this time. He led them out of Egypt and for about 40 years he put them up, put up with them in the desert. When he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. Now again, he's really kind of speeding this story or this recap up because what he's talking about here is when the israelites after wandering in the desert for 40 years came into the promised land at Cairo, at uh, jericho they had to dislodge or get rid of those people who had infiltrated into the land of israel during their time in egypt okay There weren't a lot of people, but there were various clans or little nations that had wandered into this promised land and had taken root. Obviously they're not going to let the land, you know, just sit there. So, but God had promised this land to the Israelite people and therefore they were permitted through the help of, uh, Joshua and Caleb, To get rid of the people that were there. So, as you can see, Paul is kind of really speeding this thing up. He gave them their land as an inheritance. And at the end of about 450 years, after these things, he provided judges up to Samuel, the prophet. Then they asked for a king. God gave them Saul, son of Kish. A man from the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years, another 40 years. You see, it's already mentioned twice here. Then he removed him because Saul was not faithful to God and did not do some of the things that God had commanded of him. He then removed him and raised up David as their king. Of him he testified. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will carry out my every wish. And from this man's descendants, God, according to his promise, has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. This is where we get the whole idea. God made a commitment to David that there would always be somebody who was a descendant of David, on the throne of Israel well the throne part disappeared with the Babylonian um, exile but nevertheless this is the descendant of David now that has come as part of this promise and this is where we get the whole idea of Jesus was the son of David or from the house of David okay From this man's descendants, God, according to his promise, brought about uh, to Israel a Savior, Jesus. John heralded his coming by proclaiming a baptism of repentance. John, of course, is John the Baptist. Herald his coming by proclaiming a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was completing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not. Behold, one is coming after me and I am not worthy to unfasten the sandals of his feet. My brothers, children of the family of Abraham, he's talking now to the Jewish people, and those others among you who are God-fearing, the Gentiles, to us the word of salvation has been sent. The inhabitants of Jerusalem, and their leaders failed to recognize him, Jesus, as Lord, and by condemning him they fulfilled the oracles of the prophets that are read Sabbath after Sabbath. For even though they found no grounds for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to put him to death. And when they had accomplished all that was written about him, they took him down from the tree and placed him in a tomb. But, God raised him up from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. These are now his witnesses before the people. We ourselves are proclaiming this good news to you, that what God promised our ancestors, he has brought to fulfillment for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm. You are my son. This day I have begotten you. And he raised him from the dead. Never to return to corruption. He declared in this way. I shall give you the benefits. Assured to David. And that is why he also says. In another psalm. You will not suffer your holy one. To see corruption. Now David. After he had served the will of God in his lifetime, fell asleep, was gathered to his ancestors, and did see corruption. But the one whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let's stop there for a few minutes. Down in the, in the commentary here on this section, uh, there's some very interesting, uh, Explanations in the commentary, and so I hope that you are reading these as you are reading the uh, scripture itself. Down in the last pay of, paragraph of page 63 it says, "As we have come to expect from Luke, blame for the death of Jesus is assigned to both Jewish and Roman leaders. Yet the death is interpreted as the fulfillment of the oracles of the prophets, and." All that was written about him. The prophets had spoken, particularly Isaiah, had spoken about the death of the Holy One, the Anointed. That is what the word Christ means, the Anointed of God. And though the word Jesus or Christ is not used in the Old Testament, it is referred to in other words many times. Okay? Earlier parts of Luke Acts have taught taught us some of the scripture passage to which such statements refer. For example, Isaiah 53. Uh, Isaiah chapter 53 is known as the song of the suffering servant. Psalm 31 and the stories of Joseph, Joseph and Moses in the Torah exemplifying the pattern of the rejected leader who becomes a savior. Again, Paul talking to the uh, the Jews. You must know, my brothers, that through him forgiveness of sins is being proclaimed to you, and in regard to everything from which you could not be justified under the law of Moses, in him every believer is justified. Be careful then that what was said in the prophets not about uh, not come about. Look, <clears throat> I'm sorry. That doesn't sound right. Be careful then that what was said in the prophets not come about. Hmm. Uh, look on you scoffers. Be amazed and disappear for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will never believe even if someone tells you. And as they were leaving, they invited them to speak on these subjects the following Sada. After the congregation had dispersed, many Jews and worshippers who were converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who spoke to them and urged them to remain faithful to the grace of God. All right, I'd like to go to the middle of page 64 in the the commentary. The quotation of Isaiah 55, verse 3, I shall give you the benefits assured to David, becomes even more meaningful when we discover that the immediate context of that verse in Isaiah includes reference to an everlasting covenant. And a mission to the Gentiles. So even there. Way back. And chapter uh, 55. Would be in 2nd Isaiah. Or what we call Deuteronomy. Isaiah. uh, Coming about. The 5th. End of the 5th century. B.C. So even that. 4 or 500 years. Before Christ. They're beginning to talk about opening this um, idea of the chosen people and the new promised land to the Gentiles. And that is the point I want to get to as we go on. Mm -hmm. On the next page, addressed to the Gentiles, on the following Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds they were filled with jealousy and violent abuse contradicted what Paul said. Both Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you you Jews first. But since you rejected it and condemned yourselves as unworthy of eternal life we now turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have made you a light to the Gentiles, that you may be an instrument of salvation to the ends of the earth. If you go if you well we won't do that, but if you look at Isaiah chapter 49, it talks very clearly that the mission of the Gentiles, I'm sorry. The mission of the Jews to the Gentiles has always been to carry the message of God to all mankind. And yet the Jews refuse to do that. They took this whole idea of being the promised, uh, I mean the, the chosen people too seriously. And excluded everyone who was not a Jew. And continued that. And still continues that. But the whole message. The whole purpose. Of God establishing the Jewish nation. In the first place. Was to develop all of. uh, The traditions. Started by Moses. And continued. Through the prophets. To the Gentiles as well as the Jews. And yet they refused. Yes, sir. The chosen people, now we're gonna there's an explanation that I want to get to that covers that. But the whole idea of the chosen people has now been changed from the Jewish people alone prior to Christ to those who have accepted the teachings of Christ and Christianity since the time of Christ let's go down to the middle of the page here in the commentary says with painful irony Luke shows that what was originally understood as the mission Jewish mission to be a light to the Gentiles now leaves many Jews behind That Paul and Barnabas can later return to Persidia Antioch to strengthen the disciples there and appoint elders indicates that they left behind a community of believers presumably composed of the Jews and converted Gentiles mentioned up above in 13 uh, verse 43. When they first left the town. So it says does the strong language of Paul in verse 46 and 47 mean that God has abandoned the chosen people because of their unbelief that interpretation has been the first step of Christian anti-Semitism Luke's point is is rather that which that which is reflected in Paul's own letters the gospel is meant for Jews first than Gentiles. Another purpose is to present a paradigm of early Christian mission experience. The message will be accepted by some Jews and Gentiles and rejected by others. So, getting back to the statement uh, above in that last paragraph, does the strong language of Paul in verses 46 and 47 mean that God has abandoned the chosen people no he hasn't abandoned them and he never will abandon anybody but what he's done is open the door to the whole idea of the chosen people as we just said a few minutes ago to all of those who embrace Christianity and the teachings of Christ meaning that if you reject Christ, you have rejected salvation. Now, there are some exceptions, so you've got to be very careful. For those people who never had an opportunity to know about Christ, and throughout history, you can imagine that there were zillions, I won't say how many. They, if they lived in the spirit of love, as they understood it, and have some desire for a one true God, as they understand it, then there is no reason why they cannot enjoy eternal salvation. God is not going to punish those people who are ignorant by virtue of lack of having any ability to know who Christ is. But for those who have been told and those who really understand and still continue to reject the teachings of Christ, they are also rejecting salvation. Is that clear? Um, I want to just finish up here. The Jews, however, incited the women of prominence who were worshipers and the leading men of the city stirred up by the persecution against stirred up a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their territory. So they they, Paul and Barnabas shook the dust from their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium the disciples, disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit you've got to be a little careful when you read personal pronouns to make sure you're thinking and talking about the right person, all right? If you just go back to what I just read here, uh, the the, the them, and those really get a little confusing. So you got to kind of in your mind understand who we're talking about. Let's, Let's just give you an example. The Jews, however, incited the women of prominence who were worshippers and the leading men of the city, stirred up a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their territory so that they shook the dust from their feet. You see? Well, you got to think. Sounds like an abbot in Costello who's on first. So just keep that in mind. Because... When in certain languages, um, personal pronouns are used, they aren't actually spelled out because they are understood in the conjugation of the verbs. In English, we don't have that. So if you translate directly, uh, you can get very confusing uh, sounds because... The personal pronouns can really get mixed up. Let's go on. Paul and Barnabas in Iconium. So they moved on. You can trace that in your map there. In Iconium, they entered the Jewish synagogue together and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks came to believe. Although the disbelieving Jews stirred up and poison the minds of the Gentiles against the brothers. So they stayed for a considerable period, speaking out boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the word about his grace by granting signs and wonders to occur through their hands. The people of the city were divided. Some were with the Jews, others with the Apostles. When there was an attempt by both the Gentiles and the Jews together with their leaders to attack and stone them, they realized it and fled to the Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding countryside where they continued to proclaim the good news. Here is an indication of where they are being forbidden to enter the synagogues and preach and so they used open air places the countryside that's a reference to that effect at Lystra they were crippled there was a crippled man lame from birth who had never walked he listened to Paul speaking and looked intently at him saw that he had the faith to be healed (coughs) And called out in a loud voice. Now, see there again. We have a little mixture in in personal pronouns. He listened to Paul. He, the crippled man, listened to Paul speaking. Who took? Uh, who looked intently at the crippled man? Paul looked at the crippled man. Saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out in a loud voice stand up straight uh, on your feet. The crippled man jumped up and began to walk about. When the crowd saw that Paul what had Paul had done, they cried out in Lyconium, The gods have come down to us in human form. And they called Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates for he gathered, uh, for he together with the people intended to offer sacrifice. That must have been an interesting uh, barbecue. Mm -hmm. The apostles, Barnabas and Paul, tore their garments when they heard this and rushed out into the crowd shouting, Men, why are you doing this? We are the same Nature as you, human beings, we proclaim to you good news that you should turn from these idols to the living God who made heaven and earth and sea and all that is in it. In past generations he allowed all Gentiles to go their own own ways. Yet in bestowing his goodness he did not leave himself without witness. For he gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons and filled you with nourishment and gladness for your hearts. Even with these words they scarcely restrained the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. However, some Jews from Antioch and Iconium arrived and won over the crowds. They stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the apostles gathered around him, he got up, I'm sorry, when the disciples gathered around him, he got up and entered the city. And on the following day, he left with Barnabas for Derby. Towards the end of his mission, it says, after they... After they proclaimed the good news to that city, they made a considerable number of disciples. They returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch. They strengthened the spirits of the disciples and exhorted them to persevere in the faith, saying, It is necessary for us to undergo many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. They appointed presbyters for them in each church and with praying and fasting commended them to the Lord, in whom they had put their faith. Then they traveled through Presidia and reached Pamphylia. After proclaiming the word at Perga, they went down to Attilia, and there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had accomplished. And when they arrived, they called the church together and reported what God had done with them And how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And then they spent no little time with the disciples. Down in the commentary. About the middle of that commentary it says. Luke has no trouble portraying a church that is at once charismatic and prophetic. And at the same time requiring the structure of appointed officers. Recall the conjunction of teachers and prophets among the five—that is, the deacons that were um, ordained or commissioned back in chapters uh, uh, 13, verse uh, 1, and appointed of like. Oh no, they were in chapter 6. The appointment of diaconia—diaconia uh, Diaconia is where we get the word deacon from. And see the discussion uh, in chapter 20 and 28 regarding Episcopal, Presbytery, and Diaconian. Don't ask me to pronounce them that way in Greek. Okay. Episcopal is the bishops, Presbyter is the priests, and Diaconian, or however you pronounce it, are the deacons. We sense a kind of symmetry in the narrative as the apostles return to the community that commissioned them in Syrian Antioch. This first missionary, this first mission commissioned uh, at the beginning of chapter 13 with mention of offices, that's prophets and teachers, prayer and fasting and designation of chosen works for the work the work, with a laying on of hands and sent off. Now that mission comes to a close with mention of officers, that is elders, appointed and commissioned with prayer and fasting and a reference to the work. Paul and Barnabas have now accomplished. Luke has been careful to show that this first mission was not so much what Paul and Barnabas had done but what God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And that's right. If you go back and think about it, God was using Paul and Barnabas as an instrument to further the move and the structure of Christianity by establishing these little church or house churches, you might say, and appointing certain elders and priests and deacons and bishops, of course, too. Okay. So the church is now spreading out beyond Israel into Turkey and eventually Greece. Okay. One of the real interesting things that I'd like to talk about now is Here in chapter 15. This would be. Essentially. Sometime later. And as we've talked about. In the past. One of the problems of. The acts of the apostles. Is the lack of a timetable. We have no way. To put things together. And we'll show you in in a minute. uh, One of those. Uh, apparent mix-up you might say in timing but the council of Jerusalem would have had to be several years uh, probably six, seven, eight years after Christ's death and resurrection because Paul is now quite involved which did not happen right away The church has grown way beyond Israel, and now they're getting into different kinds of problems uh, that have to be settled. And that's what we read about here in chapter 15. It says, Some who had come down from Judea were instructing the brothers, some, because we don't know exactly who these people were, but apparently. They were people with some uh, authority or respect or uh, strengths of some kind that people were listening to them. And they were saying, unless you are circumcised according to the Mosaic practice, you cannot be saved. Because there (sighs) arose no little dissension and debate by Paul and Barnabas with them. It was decided that Paul, Barnabas, and some of the others would go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and presbyters about this question. The question being do those people who come into Christianity from other sources other than Judaism such as paganism and, and many of the other religions that existed at that time do they have to go through the Jewish Right of circumcision uh, and accept the Jewish laws before they can enter into Christianity. And many people, including some of the apostles, James for one, agreed that they should. He changes his mind a little later, but nevertheless. And that is the argument that is facing the people here. And Paul is saying, no. Those people coming in directly from other uh, nations, nationalities, other religions, do not have to come in through Judaism.
1: Okay.
0: Because there arose no well, little of dissension and debate by Paul and Barnabas with it, it was decided that Paul, Barnabas, and some of the others would go up to Jerusalem to the Apostles and Presbyters about this question. They were sent on their journey by the church, the church from Antioch now, and passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, telling of the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they arrived in Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church, as well as by the Apostles and the Presbyters, and they reported that God, what God had done with them. But some from the party of the Pharisees, who had become believers in Christianity, stood up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and direct them to observe the Mosaic law. That's the, in a the nutshell what the problem is being faced here. The apostles and the Presbyters met together to see about this matter. After much debate had taken place, Peter got up and said to them, My brothers, you are well aware that from early days God made his choice among you that through my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness by granting them the Holy Spirit, just as he did us. He made no distinction between us from them, for by faith he purified their hearts. Why, then, are you now putting God to the test by placing on the shoulders of the disciples a yoke that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear, On the contrary, we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they are. The whole assembly felt silent. And they listened while Paul and Barnabas described the signs and wonders God had worked among the Gentiles through them. James, (coughs) on dietary law, After they had fallen silent, James responded, My brothers, listen to me. Simeon has described how God first concerned himself with acquiring from among the Gentiles a people for his name. That is, the Jewish people began as someone being called out from the Gentiles. The word of the prophets agree with this as it is written. After this I shall return and rebuild the fallen hut of David. From its ruins I shall rebuild it and raise it up again. So that the rest of humanity may seek out the Lord. Even all the Gentiles on whom my name is invoked. Thus says the Lord who accomplishes these things known from of old the whole idea here is that, as we've said before many times, the Gentiles were supposed to be allowed in to the Jewish ways of life long before this. But that did not happen as we know. Uh, James continues, It is my judgment, therefore, that we ought to stop troubling the Gentiles who turn to God, but tell them by letter to avoid pollution from idols, unlawful marriage, the meat of strangled animals, and blood. For Moses, for generations now, has had those who proclaim him in every town, as he has been read in the synagogues every Sabbath. So there is an exception being made, but outside of these minor things, and these, again, um, were more for health reasons than for religious observances. To avoid pollution from idols, that is worshipping idols, obviously that was not permitted. Unlawful marriage was not permitted. The meat from strangled animals was not permitted. And blood. Remember, blood by Moses was forbidden to the Jewish people even though other nations used it as a food source or would mix blood with food. But Moses disallowed that because a lot of Diseases are carried in the blood. And it was disallowed for that reason. Over a period of time, that law was misunderstood, and it was taken that the person who consumed the blood of an animal would become like that animal. And that was more important as a deterrent than the rules of hygiene. Now it's interesting that they were not permitted to consume the blood of animals, even the animal that was used for uh, the sacrifice at the Passover. But God, through Jesus Christ, says unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you cannot have life in you. So how do you reconcile what Jesus is saying versus what is being said here, or what Moses said? And that is because Jesus wants us to consume the blood, the blood which was the wine, which is now purified through the act of transubstantiation, the consecration of the wine at mass because he wants us to become like him. So he's taking the same idea and turning it around for a different reason. Then the apostles and presbyters. Presbyters, of course, is another word were priests. In agreement with the whole church decided to choose representatives and to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. The ones chosen were Silas who were Judas not Judas the Scariot but the other Judas one of the apostles who was called Barsabas. Silas, leaders among the brothers. This is the letter delivered by them the Apostles and the Presbyters, your brothers, to the brothers of Antioch, Syria, Cilicia, of Gentile origin. Greetings. Since we have heard that some of our number who went out without any mandate from us have upset you with their teachings and disturbed your peace of mind, we have with one accord decided to choose representatives and to send them to you among with along with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, who have dedicated their lives to the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we are sending Judas and Silas, who will also convey this same message by word of mouth. It is the decision of the Holy Spirit and of us not to place on you any burden beyond these necessities, namely to abstain from meat sacrificed to idols from blood, from meats of strangled animals, and from unlawful marriage. If you keep free of these, you will be doing what is right. Farewell. Um, I, I want to come back to this in a minute here, but let's go on for the next few uh, verses. And so they went on their journey, and upon arrival in Antioch, they called the assembly together and delivered the letter. When the people read it, they were delighted with the exhortation. Judas and Silas were themselves prophets, exhorted and strengthened, by, uh, strengthened the brothers with many words. After they had spent some time there, they went off with greetings of peace from the brothers to those who had commissioned them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and proclaiming with many others the word of the Lord. Now, this letter, whenever there is a ecumenical council within the church, there is always one or more letters that are sent out and we generally hear them or hear about them as encyclicals I'm sure you've all heard the word encyclical what does the word encyclical mean? Hmm? circular letter okay encyclical and cycle yeah circular letter one that is sent around to all of the churches and applies to all Christians all Catholics all right so when you ever whenever you see or hear of uh, the Pope and only the Pope issuing an encyclical it is something that you should at least become aware of the essence. All right, And many of them are extremely important and very interesting. I'd like to talk about this as this meeting of Paul and Peter and all of the main characters of the new Christian church. In Jerusalem, at this particular time, because it is the prototype uh, of our ecumenical councils, and if you if you take this handout that I have given you up here, if you someone doesn't have a copy, there are more up here in front. Now, I don't, I don't want you to read this right now. Uh, we'll get to it later. What I'd like you to do is to understand what the ecumenical councils are. Okay. Quite often you will hear people say that the Catholic Church is so far behind times and, uh, needs to be brought up to date. Uh, or they're old fashioned and needs to be, uh, to get on with it and think about uh, things in more modern terms. The purpose of these councils are to do exactly that. Whenever there is a major issue developing among various Christians, Catholics primarily, uh, there is a council brought together. It can only be brought together by a pope. Now, that doesn't mean that a group of bishops can't urge the pope to do so, but to be an official ecumenical council, it must be called by the pope. All right? There have been 21 of them so far uh, from the time... Of the first one, which was in the year 437, I believe. No, 325. The first one was the Council of Nicaea, which established the Nicene Creed. Since then, there have been 20 others. Now, the one that we just talked about in chapter 15 of the Acts was not included in this 21 because... The only documentation that we have is what is in the scripture. There is no other documentation to support by name who was there and so forth. All of the others, there is still in existence written documentation of who was there, what was their purpose, when did they start, who was it called by, when did it end uh, and what was accomplished. All of that is documented. And therefore we have 21 of these. I have uh, given you on this page just one. But at the bottom of it you could go uh, to this website and get the others. It would cover another four pages. Okay. But let me just briefly read some of the others here. Which I do have. The second, one, the second one, and they are generally named after the location of where they took place. Now, for the last two, they were both taken, both of them uh, took place at the Vatican. And they were called Vatican I and Vatican II, uh, as you all know. Uh, but in the early days, the first one was at Nicaea in Greece. The second one was at Constantinople. The third one was at Ephesus. Uh, The fourth one was at Chalcedon. And uh, then there was a second one in the year 553 at Constantinople. And let me just give you, it says, the second general council uh, at Constantinople, the fifth um, of the ecumenical councils, had 165 bishops under Pope Vilius and Emperor Justinian. The emperor uh, up through the end of the Roman Empire was always included. Uh, It condemned the errors of origin and certain uh, writers. Then there was a let's see here, in the year 680 was the third council of Constantinople. Uh, the next one was another one at Nicaea. The fourth one, I mean the next one was a fourth at Constantinople. That indicates the tension between Rome and Constantinople. right? The head location you might say Of the Greek Orthodox. Uh, Later, there was one, uh, the first Lateran Council, which of course is in Rome, Uh, the second Lateran Council, also in Rome, then the third, the fourth, uh, a council at Lyon, the 13th, the 14th was another council at Lyon. Uh, The 15th was in Vienna. The 16th, um, the Council of Constance. I don't know where that is. It's not, I guess, too important. Uh, The 17th was at Basel. Uh, It also moved to Florence. The 18th was uh, another Lateran Council. The 19th was at Trent. The first Vatican Council obviously was at the Vatican. And the second one was uh, also at the Vatican. second Vatican Council was the 21st from 1962 to 1965. All right, And it started in December of 1962. And that's why when we hear the year of faith, the year of faith began in December of last year and it goes to December of this year, and it recognizes the 50th anniversary of the Second Vatican Council. Now, the Second Vatican Council issued 16 major documents, and I find it extremely interesting because These documents are not difficult to understand. They clearly define uh, many aspects of the Catholic Church. And they are available for everyone and anyone uh, who wishes to read them. From them came other documents and other movements, such as the transfer of the Mass and other celebrations, From Latin to the local language, all right, Uh, such as, and and other movements such as the uh, changing of the position of the altar from against the back wall uh, to that facing the people. And you have a a number of changes and a documentation as to why the purpose of all of these. Uh, I would almost like to hold a a 10 week uh, course on just the Vatican 2 because it would be of, of great importance to each of us and it would help you to understand uh, some of the details of your faith uh, a lot more than most of us do. Okay. Any questions so far? Oh good lots of questions. Yes. I'm sorry? The Cruelty, for one thing. All right. Um, but the way it was done was you wouldn't want to even see it. Uh, the lady up here asked why did uh, they forbid strang- eating the meat of strangled animals. And one of them, of course, is Cruelty. Environmentalist, environmentalist already set in way back in the second century yes Susan uh, that may be I'm not aware of that but what Luke says that uh, he read somewhere where one of the Egyptian pharaohs had a favorite god and used bread and wine as a sacrifice offered to him That has some bearing on uh, an entry in the book of Leviticus where it talks about the Jewish people having a variety of sacrifices, not only uh, animal sacrifice at Passover. And they did offer bread and wine as a sacrifice. It was a sacrifice of thanksgiving for favors received or for a good harvest or for a health return for a variety of reasons and that of course is where Jesus took that particular offering and made it the centerpiece of our mass or the, the new Passover you might say because animal sacrifice was no longer necessary because his death on the cross Uh, was sufficient to cover all of that for all time and so from that point on or actually from the destruction of the temple in 70 AD 40 years later uh, animal sacrifice disappeared from all uh, religion religion, religious observances excuse me so that may have some bearing on uh, where the Jewish people picked that up while they were Uh, captives, you might say, in Egypt. Yes. Yes. Michelle? With regard to the Independent Apostles, they founded like the
1: great authority from them. But with regards to infallibility, were they considered doctrine of
0: basic morals, or were they set below that as far as the whole infallibility? The, Michelle is bringing up the question of Pope's infallibility and whether or not it was a part of one of the ecumenical councils. Yes, and it, it definitely was. Uh, both in the Council of Trent and in the First Vatican Council, the subject of the infallibility of the Pope, only when he's speaking in the subject uh, or on the subject of faith and morals Is he infallible? All right. Now, that privilege has only been used twice in 200 years. And those two times were in 1854 when he pronounced the dogma of the Immaculate Conception. And in 1954, when he pronounced the dogma of the assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Those are the only times that that particular privilege uh, has been used in the last 200 years. So I don't know why people make a big deal out of it. If they only would do their homework and understand it, uh, you know, there is no argument, really. Yes, sir. Is there a mechanism short of
1: convening a council to answer the question of? Uh, now I'm going to get a little complicated in this question, but we'll...
0: all your questions are complicated.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, right here in the United States, we have elected Catholic legislators who contend well. I'm a Catholic, but I can't stop other people by voting to end abortion. I wouldn't tell them not to do it. Well, of all people, to come up with such a clear answer is a cardinal from Nigeria. And his answer is, well, if that elected legislator would face the question, should we start shooting legislators And his answer would be, well, no, I wouldn't shoot a legislator, but I wouldn't stop anybody else from shooting a legislator. (laughs) So therefore, now that that part of the question is over, is there a mechanism short of gathering a council to say, we will not give communion to those legislators who will not uh, go to end of the murder of children?
0: There's nothing, there's nothing, uh, that would stop that or prevent that. Uh, it's just, uh, that has not taken place, but I wouldn't doubt in time that will be a major subject of probably the next Vatican Council. Okay. Now, on the other hand, if you go to, uh, Bishop Chaput's book called Render to Caesar and I highly recommend it. This is a book prepared and issued by the Bishop of Denver, Colorado, Bishop Chaput, C-H-U-P-U-T. The book is called Render to Caesar. It addresses that subject very clearly about how we should accept or reject statements by so-called Catholic politicians who vote or refuse to vote in line with Catholic beliefs. Uh, The whole idea of whether or not these people are worthy of receiving communion is addressed very nicely uh, and appropriately by Bishop Chaput. And uh, I would strongly recommend that book because it addresses many issues um, that are of importance today as to how all Catholics should act or react to those questions that arise and confront some of the Beliefs that we hold. Did you read it? Did you read it? No. C-H-U-P-U-T. Or that it could be C-H-A, but I think it's C-H-U-P-U-T. Yeah. All right. Any other questions? Did you find this kind of Information of interest. There's no reason why we can't deviate a little bit from the scripture text and get into subjects such as this kind when they are somewhat related. As I said, the council that was convened in accordance with chapter 15 of the Acts of the Apostles is considered a prototype to all of the following uh, ecumenical councils. Because it contained, including the Pope at that time, Peter, and all of the main uh, strong leaders of the Catholic Church, Christian Church, I should say, at that time, uh, and it was for the purpose of deciding a very important problem that was facing uh, the people. So, Joe? Yeah, I have a question. What year, what year, when did the divergence of the Greek Orthodox and the Catholic, you know, when did that happen? What year was that? Happen? Well, it was, it was twice. It actually happened twice. Yes. Oh, they fight it, so. Yeah, there was two times when they, uh, but the last one was somewheres in the 9th uh, century, but I don't remember the exact date. Ten fifty three sounds. Or, that was, yeah. Some Somewhere's in that time frame. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm not certain of the exact date. Yeah. Have they never met in
1: Constantinople
0: again. No. 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 Yeah. Any other questions? All right. Let's say a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for allowing us to come together to discuss some of the things that we read and how they affect us. Help us to better understand Holy Scripture and how it applies to us today. For just reading it as history doesn't do us any good. We want To be able to take it into our own ideas, our own mind and heart, and use it in accordance with your most holy will. So we ask your blessing on our efforts, not only today, but as we go forward during this holy season of Lent. Help us to be the children uh, that you want us to be. So we thank you for the time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.